Um, so to our, to our final guest, to our final guest this evening, by a, a strange twist, our final guest this evening was taught by Thomas Keneally, as we mentioned earlier. She's here tonight to read for the first time in the UK from her new novel, Maybe Be Forgiven. Um, now, The Guardian had this to say, uh, that she's a masterful dissector of modern American life. Her writing exerts a push-pull that feels like being in a hall of mirrors. You want to run away, but find yourself compelled to look at the, the reflection. I was disgusted um, and enthralled, um, and then disgusted for being enthralled. I loved it. Please welcome A.M. Holmes. Professor Keneally was indeed my professor, and I, I was thinking about it, and I think it's a long time ago. I was 12. He was in his 50s. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, because it's fascinating to hear him talk about uh, writing women, because one of the things that I really did get from him was that sense of the importance of the use of the imagination and the freedom to write characters who are not only truly fictional, but also very much other than oneself. And people always say, and now I have the perfect answer. Why do you write like a man? I'm just going to say, because Keneally taught me to, um, or in a man's voice. I could never write in a, a nurse's voice ever, but I will try. You may wonder why I'm, I'm rearranging the furniture. Okay, so I'm just going to read to you from the new book, um, and it's an edited version of the beginning, so there'll be things left out. It's a very long book. It's 203,000 words, maybe 203,002. Um, there's an unfortunate moment because I took stand-up comedy while writing the book. Um, and, and I've noticed that the book tour seems to always be punctuated by these moments where I just diverge. Um, so I keep promising myself, don't do that. And then I have to have a conversation with myself while I'm doing it in front of groups such as yourself. It's happening again now. Um, don't do that. Okay, so it will, I, well, let's hope it doesn't happen again, but may we be forgiven. An incantation a prayer, the hope that somehow I come out of this alive. Was there ever a time you thought, I'm doing this on purpose, I'm fucking up, and I don't know why? Do you want my recipe for disaster? The warning sign, last year, Thanksgiving at their house. 20 or 30 people at tables spreading from the dining room into the living room, stopping abruptly at the piano bench. He was at the head, picking turkey out of his teeth, talking about himself. I kept watching him as I went back and forth, carrying plates into the kitchen, the edges of my fingers dipping into unnameable goo, cranberry, sweet potato, cold pearl onion, gristle. With every trip back and forth from the dining room to the kitchen, I hated him more. Every sin of our childhood, beginning with his birth, came back. He entered the world 11 months after me, sickly at first, and was given far too much attention. And then despite what I repeatedly tried to tell him about how horrible he was, he acted as though he believed he was a gift of the gods. They named him George. Geo, he liked to be called, like that was something cool, something scientific, mathematical, analytical. Geode, I liked to call him, like a sedimentary rock. <laughs> By the time we were 10 and 11, he was taller than me, broader, stronger. Are you sure he's not the butcher's boy? My father would ask jokingly. No one laughed. Oh, I laughed. See how I go? <laughs> Stop it. I know it's like, 
Don't take, if you're writing things, do not attempt another career path in the middle of what you're doing, because this is what happens and it looks like you're having a breakdown, but you're not. You're just, I don't know what, I have like two hard drives upstairs now, one's going at one speed, one's going at another speed, it's, you know. It could get worse, actually. It has in the past, okay. And then it gets really funny, I have to say, and I'm just trying to, don't do it. I know, you could do it. Laconic. <laughs> she was a laconic reader. Laconically, I was bringing heavy plates and platters, casseroles, cake, with the debris of dinner, and no one noticed that help was needed. Not George, not his two children, not his awful friends who were, in fact, in his employ. Among them, a weather girl and assorted spare anchor men and women who sat stiff back and hair sprayed like Ken and Barbie and not my Chinese-American wife, Claire, who in fact hated turkey and never failed to remind us that her family used to celebrate with roast duck and Sticky's wife. Sticky's wife? Hmm. See, that was impromptu. I could go on. No, this is a good thing. Happy birthday, Damien. Oh, wait, it's not, is it really your birthday, though? No, it's our birthday. Oh, I know, it was four, because I thought you looked a little old for, I mean, tall. Big for your age. Okay, I mean, you know what I meant, four. I mean, if you were four, I wasn't sure what the four is. Okay. a day over three. No, exactly. Uh, uh, yes, okay. They have drugs for what I'm doing now. Drugs to make it better and to make it worse. I could focus, okay, just finish already, okay. It's okay, I've got it now. Um, okay, there was, okay. Christmas, thanks, okay, where we go. I know, I know, the sticky wife. And just get, okay, don't no, start again. See, it could just, okay, really. George's wife, Jane, had been at, all, at it all day, cooking, cleaning, serving, and was now scraping plates into a giant trash bin. Jane scoured the plates, piling dirty dishes one on top of the other and dropping the slimy silver into the sink. Glancing at me, she brushed her hair away with the back of her hand and smiled. I went back for more. I looked at their children and imagined them dressed as pilgrims in black buckle shoes, doing pilgrim children chores, like carrying buckets of milk like human oxen. Nathaniel, 12, and Ashley, 11, sat like lumps at the table, hunched or more like curled as if poured into their chairs, truly spineless, eyes focused only on their small screens, the only thing in motion, their thumbs, one texting friends no one had ever seen, the other killing digitized terrorists. In the background, two televisions loudly competed amongst themselves for no one's attention, one featuring football and the other the film Mighty Joe Young. You know, I'm a company man, heart and soul, George says. I'm the network's president of entertainment. I am ever aware, 24-7. There's a television on in every room. The fact is, George can't bear to be alone, not even in the bathroom. The turkey platter was at the center of the table, and I reached over my wife's shoulder and lifted. The tray was heavy and wobbled. I willed myself to stay strong and was able to carry out the mission while balancing a casserole of Brussels sprouts with bacon in the crook of my other arm. The turkey was an heirloom bird, which means it had been rubbed, relaxed, and herbed into submission, into thinking it wasn't so bad to be decapitated and stuffed up the ass with breadcrumbs and cranberries in an annual rite. <laughs> I stood in their kitchen picking up the carcass while Jane did the dishes, bright blue gloves on up to her elbows and suds. My fingers were deep in the bird, the hollow body still warm, the best bits of stuffing packed in. I dug with my fingers and brought stuffing to my lips. Jane looked at me my mouth moist, my fingers curled into what would have been the turkey's G-spot if they had such things. <laughs> she lifted her hands out of the water and came towards me to plant one on me. Not friendly. The kiss was serious and full of desire. It was terrifying and unexpected. 
She did it and then snapped off her gloves and walked out of the room. I was left holding the counter, gripping it with greasy fingers. Dessert was served. Jane asked if anyone wanted coffee and went back into the kitchen, and I followed her like a dog, wanting more. Jane ignored me. Are you ignoring me? I asked. She said nothing and then handed me the coffee. Can't you let me have a little pleasure, a little something that's just for myself? She paused. Cream and sugar? From Thanksgiving through Christmas and on into the new year, all I thought of was George fucking Jane. George on top of her, for special occasion, George on the bottom. And once, fantastically, George having her from the back, his eyes fixed on a wall-mounted television, the ticker tape of news headlines trickling across the bottom of the screen. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was convinced that despite his charms, his excess of professional achievement, George wasn't very good in bed, and that all he learned about sex he learned from the pages of magazines read furtively while shitting. I thought of my brother fucking his wife constantly. It begins again. It's almost nine on an evening towards the end of February when Jane calls. Claire is still at the office. She's always at the office. Another man would think his wife was having an affair. I just think Claire is smart. I need your help, Jane says. Don't worry, I say, before I even know what the worry is. He's at the police station, she says. There's some kind of a problem. I glance at the New York skyline. Did he do something wrong? Apparently, she says, they want me to come get him. Can you, can you go and pick your brother up? Don't worry, I say, repeating myself. A fight. On the way to the police station, that's what I'm thinking. George has it in him, a kind of atomic reactivity that stays under the surface until something triggers him and he erupts, throwing over a table, smashing a fist through a wall. More than once, I've been the recipient of his frustrations, a baseball hurled at my back, striking me at kidney level. I imagine he went out for a drink after work and got on the wrong side of someone. 33 minutes later, I park outside a small suburban police station. Skipping. <laughs> Don't do it again. You are the brother. Yes, I'm the brother. Uh, we wanted to take him to the hospital, but he wouldn't go. He kept repeating he's a dangerous man and we should take him downtown and lock him up and be done with it. Personally, I think the man needs a doctor. You don't walk away from something like that unscathed. So we got into a fight, I ask. Car accident, bad one, the cop says. Doesn't appear he was under the influence. He passed a breath test, consented to urine. He really should see a doctor. Was it his fault, I ask. He ran a red light and plowed into a minivan. The husband was killed on impact. The wife was alive at the scene. Rescue crews used the jaws of life to free her, and upon release, she expired. Her legs fell out of the car, someone calls from a back office. The boy's in fair condition, he'll survive, the cop says. Your brother's in back, I'll get him. Is my brother being charged with a crime? Not at the moment, there'll be a full investigation. The officers noted that he appeared disoriented. Take him home, get him a doctor, a lawyer. These things can get ugly. George comes out disheveled. Why are you here, he asks me. Jane called, and besides, you had the car. She could have taken a taxi. It's late. I lead George through the small parking lot and into the night, feeling compelled to take his arm, to guide him by his elbow. Not sure if I'm preventing him from escaping or just steadying him. Either way, George doesn't pull away. He lets himself be led. Where's Jane, he asks. At the house, I say. Does she know? I shake my head. No. It was awful, he says. There was a light. Did you see the light, George? I think I may have seen it, but it was like it didn't make sense. Like it didn't apply to you, I ask. Like I just didn't know. He gets into the car. Where's Jane, he asks again. At the house, I repeat. Buckle your belt. 
Pulling into the driveway, the headlights cut through the house and catch Jane in the kitchen holding a pot of coffee. Are you all right? She asks when we're inside. How could I be? George says. He empties his pockets onto the kitchen counter, takes off his shoes, his socks, his pants, his boxers, his jacket, his shirt, his undershirt, and stuffs it all into the kitchen rubbish bin. Would you like some coffee? Jane asks. Naked, George stands with his head tilted as if he's hearing something. Coffee, she asks again, <coughs> gesturing with the pot. He doesn't answer. He walks from the living room to the dining room and into the uh, living room. Well, he walks around. <laughs> in America, it's, no, it's fine. I don't know where I am anymore. He sits in the dark, naked in a chair. Did he get into a fight, Jane asks? Car accident. You better call your insurance company and your lawyer. Do you have a lawyer? George, do we have a lawyer? Do I need one? If I do, call Rutkowski. Something's wrong with him, Jane says. He killed people. There's a pause. She pours George a cup of coffee and brings it into the living room along with a dish towel that she drapes over his genitals like putting a napkin in his lap. For a long time, he sits in the chair, the dish towel shielding his privates, the cup of coffee daintily on his lap, and beneath him, a puddle forms. George, Jane implores when she hears what sounds like water running. You're having an accident. Tessie, the old dog, gets up from her bed, comes over and sniffs it. Jane hurries to, into the kitchen and comes back with a wad of paper towels. It'll eat the finish right off the floor, she says. <laughs> Through it all, George looks blank, like the empty husk left by a reptile who shed his skin. Jane takes the coffee cup from George and hands it to me. She takes the wet towel from his lap, helps him to stand, and leads him upstairs. I watch as they climb the steps. I see my brother's body slack, his stomach sagging slightly, the bones of his hips, his pelvis, his flat ass, all so white, they glow in the dark. As they climb, I see below his ass and tucked between his legs, his low purplish sack swaying like an old lion. I sit on their couch. Where is my wife? Isn't Claire curious to know what happened? Doesn't she wonder why I'm not home? I'm staring through the dark at an old wooden tribal mask made out of hemp hair and feather. I'm staring at an unfamiliar face that their son Nate brought back from a school trip to South Africa, and the mask seems to be staring back as though inhabited wanting to say something, taunting me with its silence. I hate this living room. I hate this house. I want to go home. I text Claire and explain what happens, and she writes back, I took advantage of your being gone, and I'm still at the office. It seems like you should stay the night. Dutifully, I sleep on the sofa with a small, smelly blanket covering my shoulders. Tessie, the dog, joins me, warming my feet. And I'm going to skip forward to there's a part. So the next day, they take George, thank God, to the hospital, where he really does belong. Um, and the doctor says to George, do you know why you're here? And he says, I've got bad aim, which just only makes things worse. It is 203,000 words, so I'll just skip forward a little bit more. Okay. It's funny how quickly these things become a routine, a way of doing business. I stay with Jane, and it's as though we're playing house. That night, I take out the trash and lock the door. She makes a snack, and we watch a little television and read. I read whatever it was that George had been reading, his newspapers, his magazines, the big history of Thomas Jefferson that sits beside the bed. The accident happens, and then it happens. It doesn't happen the night of the accident or the night we all visit. It happens the night after that, the night after Claire tells me not to leave Jane alone, the night after Claire leaves for China. Claire goes on her trip, George goes downhill, and then it happens, the thing that was never supposed to happen. The evening visit to the hospital goes badly. George is locked in a padded room, 
He looks miserable. Jane asks to go in and see him, and while the nurse cautions her against it, she insists. Jane goes to him and calls his name. He looks at her. She sweeps his hair out of his face and wipes his furrowed brow, and then he turns on her, pins her, and bites her again and again, her face, her neck, her hands, breaking the skin. The aides rush in and pull George off Jane, and she's taken downstairs and treated in the emergency room. Her wounds are cleaned and dressed, and she's given some sort of a shot, like a rabies vaccination. We go back to the house, and Jane heats 100-calorie brownies in the microwave, and I scoop, scoop non-fat ice cream onto them, and she sprays them with zero-calorie whipped cream, and I cheer them further with chocolate sprinkles. We snack in silence. I take out the trash and change my clothes. I hug her. I want to be comforting. I am in George's pajamas. I don't think anything will happen. I apologize, I say, without knowing what I'm saying, and then she is against me. She puts her hands on the sides of her skirt and slides it down. There was a time I almost told Claire about Thanksgiving. In fact, I tried to tell her one night after I was feeling particularly close. I started to tell her the story, and Claire sat up straight and pulled the sheet tight against her body. I backed away from what I was about to say. I changed it and left out the kiss and just mentioned that Jane brushed against me. You were in her way, Claire says. I don't mention that I felt the head of my cock pressing against my sister-in-law's hips. Only you would think she was making a pass, Claire said. Only me, I repeated, only me. Jane is on me, and I'm thinking, this isn't really going to happen, is it? And then there's a whole part you can read at home by yourselves. <laughs> I, I, recently, I actually recently had to re go back to my hometown of Washington, D.C. with my parents, who are 94 and 86, my fourth grade teacher, every single neighbor. And I was like, the head of my, uh, like, was, uh. and I just, I really, yeah, so. There's a lot of good stuff like that in here, <laughs> despite that it's a tragic story. Oh, God, I'm just, you're getting me on a very special night, Damien. I'm insane. Okay. <laughs> this is like the 20th day in a row I've been, you know, thousands of miles from home. Okay. Heading to Australia soon, actually. You probably won't let me come back. Okay. Uh, Drenched in her scent, but too shaken to shower or fall asleep in the bed, I wait until she's asleep and then go downstairs to the kitchen and wash myself with dish soap. I'm in my brother's kitchen at three in the morning, soaping my cock at his sink, drying myself with a towel that says, home sweet home. <laughs> I made it up. It's okay. It happens again in the morning when she finds me on the sofa, and then again in the afternoon after we visit George. What's the story with your hand? George asked Jane the next day, noticing her bandages. He's back in his room with no memory of the night before, and Jane starts to cry. You look like hell, he says. Get some rest. It's been a difficult time, I say. That evening, we open a bottle of wine and do it again, more slowly, deliberately. The hospital lets George out, or more likely, he simply decides to leave. Inexplicably, he's able to walk out unnoticed in the middle of the night. He comes home and attacks you using money he's found wrinkled at the bottom of his pocket. He can't find his keys, so he rings his bell, and the dog barks. Maybe I heard that part, the dog barking. Or maybe he didn't ring the bell, and maybe the dog didn't bark. Maybe George took the spare key from under the mat or from inside the fake rock in the garden by the door and, like an intruder, came silently into his own house. Maybe he came upstairs thinking he'd crawl into his bed, but his spot was taken. I don't know how long he stood there. I don't know how long he waited before he lifted the lamp from her side of the bed and smashed it onto her head. That's when I woke up. She's screaming. The one blow isn't enough. She tries to get up. The lamp isn't even broken. George looks at me, then picks the lamp up again and swings it at her. The porcelain vase that is the base explodes against her head, and by then I'm out of bed. 
He tosses aside what remained of the lamp, blood streaming down his fingers, picks up the phone and throws it to me. Call it in, he says. I stand facing George wearing his pajamas. We're the same like mimes. We have the same gestures, the same faces, the family chin, my father's brow, the same mismatched selves. I'm staring at George, not knowing how this is going to work out. An awful gurgling sound prompts me to dial the phone. Accidentally, I drop the phone, and as I bend to pick it up, my brother's foot catches me under the chin, kicking me hard. My head snaps back. I am down as he leaves the room. I see his hospital gown under his clothes, hanging out like some kind of tail. I hear George's heavy footfalls. He goes down the stairs. I reach across the floor and pull the phone towards me and dial O. I dial O like it's a hotel, like I expect someone to answer. There's a long recording, a kind of spoken word essay about what the O button can do for you, and I realize it will be forever before a person comes on. I hang up, and after several shaky attempts, I dial 911. A woman has been beaten, I say. Hurry and give them the address. I pull myself to standing, go in the bathroom, and get a washcloth as, that, as though that will do something. It takes forever. The fire trucks come first. The house shakes as it pulls up, and I leave Jane and go to the window. They come across the grass in full fire gear, hats and coats, immune to the pre-dawn spray of the irrigation system. I don't know if he opens the door or if they come in of their own accord. Upstairs, I shout, and quickly they are upon her. One stands apart, talking as if narrating into his radio. We've got a middle-aged woman. Uh, bring a longboard, full air, medic bag, request police support. Who is this woman, the narrator asks. Jane, my brother's wife. Any relevant medical information, allergies, underlying conditions? Does Jane have any medical problems? I shout down. A lamp hit her on the head, my brother says. The paramedics slip an orange board under Jane and tape her to it with what looks like duct tape. They wrap her head in gauze, and she looks like a mummy, a battle casualty, or maybe a shriner en route to convention. Jane makes a noise, a low guttural growl, as five of them lift her and carry her out. They are out the kitchen door and into the back of the ambulance, faster than you would think. George is in the kitchen drinking a cup of coffee. There's blood on his hands, flecks of something on his face, pieces of lamp, shards. No, no parking on the grass, he says to the first police officer who arrives. Inform your troops. Which one of you is Mr. Sh Silver, the cop asks, and I assume he must be a detective because he's not wearing a uniform. We both raise our hands simultaneously. I am. We're brothers, I say. So who did what to whom? He's got his notebook out. George sips his coffee. I say nothing. I have to say, I told Damien I was going to read some of the funny parts, but... Um, <laughs> But um, Professor Keneally was so good and so serious, I thought, I can't do that. He is so good so, and so serious. Was she like that in college? She's like, yes. <laughs> exactly. I could see dark things coming. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so George, George is just a fuck up. Um, yeah. He's a, he's, a, he's a television network executive, um, but he's a, man in he's a man in complete control, and he has this kind of psychotic moment. He's had episodes before, and I think one of the really exciting and interesting things about the book is that we go back and explore what those moments that yes. maybe told us something about who he was right, were. Right. I think George is that guy, and we, and we all know him, um, who's got the fat suits and the, and the thin suits, and who's sometimes taking a lot of medication and then not taking any. Um, yeah, so anyway, yes, he has, he has what I call, is known as intermittent explosive disorder. 
Did you make that up? I, I wasn't no, sure if I that actually was a real didn't. disorder. No, I actually didn't. I didn't. I also think, though, isn't that also what they call like a landmine, an IED? IED, or Maybe yeah, I exactly. made, I don't know. Maybe no, I conflated the two. I don't know. Um, so so George, yeah. is, George, is, George is a mess, and he does this terrible thing at the beginning of the book, and, yeah. and, his, and his brother is forced to kind of step up, and the course of the novel takes place over a year, from one Thanksgiving to the next. Yes. And you said, you know, oh, it's, you know, terrible things happen, and terrible things do happen, lots of terrible things, um, but actually it's really ultimately a story of redemption, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a story about... Um, so I say, it's a story about family and how we make a family. But you know, I keep yeah. calling it sort of a midlife coming of age book because it's, I wanted to write about brothers and I was very interested in the kind of Cain and Abel and quasi sort of almost biblical relationship of intense, you know, both passion and, and competitiveness. And you know, I think it's interesting that one guy sleeps with the other brother's wife and he doesn't kill the brother, he kills the wife. Oops, yeah. no, I mean, I guess you maybe didn't really know, anyway. So I think that there's there's that piece of it. George, it's, it's like one of those spoil horrible, alert. No, exactly. It's like one of those terrible children's um, book. George kills Jane, right, exactly, and Harry exactly. stands by. Right, you know. exactly. Yes, um, that only happens at the very beginning. So you didn't, you're not missing. I mean, whatever. Okay. And then there are the um, and then there are the children who kind of are heroic in a way. I mean, Nate. Yes. Nate. Well, you know, I love the children. The funny thing is, so the children you heard them described as they're these lumps whose only their thumbs move, and what you begin to realize is that they are so imploded because in a way they're afraid of their father. They can't exist around the father. And as soon as their whole life is basically ruined, they actually become these incredible people. Just like a nuclear um, they implosion. Unfold. They need the yeah. father to die in order that they can be yeah. the people they're going to yeah. be. Yeah. And the, and the father gets sent off to a mental hospital that then closes to become what we call an executive conference facility. Um, so then they put him in a new program where he's basically sent to live in the woods and eat government cheese that's kept in lockers. Um, it's, no, it's, called, it's called the Woodsman Facility, and I, kind of, I love the idea that it's like some awful reality program right. where all these men are sent off to the woods together. Slightly hot up to this point, but after that point, not yeah. so hot. And they, and they all have to kind of compete with each other for resources, but they're all tagged. Right, they're um, all tagged. You know, and, but, but, but then the one brother gives the other an iPad for Christmas, right. and terrible things happen. Well, then he becomes so. like, he, he meets up with a former used car salesman from New Jersey, and they become Israeli arms dealers. Um, <laughs> and then there has to, an intervention in the Woodsman program has to occur. Um, so, so one of the one of the darkest things about the novel um, is that is this idea that suburbia is a place where I mean it's a sort of familiar idea where there's a kind of dystopia behind the utopia, but also um, you know um, one of the brothers is exploring this in a way because he's never been exposed to it. He lived in the city and he comes right. to the suburbs and he thinks, you know what, everything's fucked up. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have a lot of sex, I'm, and, he, and, he, and he starts to have sex and in, in very interesting ways. Well, I mean, the, yeah, that's, yes. And what, so he, he his wife, obviously the, his wife Claire leaves him, which makes good sense, it's a good decision there. And he goes on what I would call an internet bender. Um, it's kind of like a crime spree, only slightly different. Um, and the funny thing is, I, I mean, I really do write fiction, but all of the details, I was shocked when I, when I went online looking to see what was out there. It's appalling. No, the level of, the level I'm thinking of, about your Google history at this I know, point. I know, I, I worry about it so much, my Google history. I could be convicted of everything. I mean, basically. <laughs> um, you know, and I was pen pals with Pete Townsend as a child, which is a whole other thing. We never, we've never talked about that, Damien. Well, let's not bring up Jimmy Savile. No, I'm sorry, no, I mean, and we were pen pals. We weren't. Um, you really were with, with yeah. I used to have. Who, a strange... I only know from being a pedophile, but he was also in the Who or whatever it was. No, I've got my terrible musical knowledge that always. He was also in the Who while he wasn't. You know. Um, but, but back. Wasn't his, I, there's wasn't so much to think about about you being pen pals with Pete Townsend, but just just bringing it back. I thought you were just. So, this so, is how bad my, my how tired I am. There's so much to think about you being pedophiles with Pete Townsend. <laughs> 
the, we the, were not the, the, the yes. internet search history yes. um, and how you know, for example, things like he meets this woman called Cheryl, yes. and they go and play naked laser tag I know, I in a mall. I was going to read that part. That yes, they go and play naked. Well, it's it's they go to a swingers night at a laser tag place at a mall. And the funny thing is, people always want to know what are the kernels of truth. So there's this wonderful artist colony called Yaddo in upstate New York, where I go and I write. And there's it's it's very it's it's beyond suburbia and into whatever comes next, which is a little more frightening actually than suburbia. Um, there's more dead animals by the side of the road mm -hmm. and stuff. And there was this shopping mall, and there really was this thing called laser tag, which I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's like you wear this pack, and they give you a gun, and it's mostly maybe eight, eight to 15-year-old boys. And Yaddo has artists between about 25 and 90, okay? So I decided to organize a field trip. I'm going to take all of them to play laser tag, because this is what you do in upstate New York when there's nothing else to do. And we get in there, we all put these packs on, and they're telling us the rules. Like, if you're shot more than 20 times, your thing shuts down for 10 minutes, and there's no pushing and no shoving and whatever. And we get in there, and it's really all these boys, and they're immediately pushing, and I literally pick one up, and go, no shoving! And I drop them down. Um, and then, and somehow, in my weird imagination, that morphs into naked laser tag with swingers looking to, like, pick up people. So, like, guys in their undies, like, running around shooting at, like, women in their sports bras. It is a disturbing scene, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. It's a very and then they go out for ice cream. It's even better. Yeah. Oh no! And then they see other people. Is it like an Applebee's or somewhere like that? Friend, we call it friendlies. Yeah. Friendlies. This which is, is, I don't, who thinks of that friendlies? The same sort of thing. Now, yeah. there, there's a kind of another strand to the novel, which I think is really interesting, which is about Nixon. Mm -hmm. um, and Nixon is kind of a character in the novel, and he's the preoccupation of one of the brothers. He's his professional right. preoccupation. He's writing a book about him. Um, but but he's Nixon being the kind of classic unreliable narrator. Yes. And I just wanted to know what that fascination was for the character, and I guess also for you, because sure. you, know, you tweeted recently about, about being fascinated by him and being, yes. being at the zoo in DC right, exactly. when Pat when Nixon accepted the pandas. Exactly. Yes, and exactly. Well, part of it is I grew up in Washington, DC, so Nixon was sort of the first president of my kind of conscious life. And I think there's an interesting thing where, literally as Watergate was unfolding, and, and it was also, you know, the, the Watergate hearings were televised, it was one of the first times there had been televised hearings, it really dovetailed with my, what I would call my moral development and being a teenager. And the idea that the president, you know, begins to say, if the president does it, it's, it's not illegal, which clearly inspired the, gener the you know, presidents that followed Nixon. So, hey, we can all do it, if it's, you know, as long as it's fine. Um, that's my pencil, I should write a book. Um, so there was that, and I think Nixon to me was a fascinating figure in part because information about the Nixon presidency continues to be released. So there were all these files that were seized in 1974 that are now coming out. And I think it's super interesting that this year, Ann Beatty wrote a book called Mrs. Nixon. Tom Mallon wrote a book called Watergate. Nixon in China has had a resurrection. And now there's some play in New York called Checkers, which was their dog this opening. But the, you know, the, the levels to which you know, it, it threads through, like Nixon opened our relationship, the US relationship with China. So you look at 40 years later, yeah. uh, China owns more US debt than any other country. Every toy we play with, everything where it's all made in China, but we don't talk about that in, certainly not in literature. And so I wanted to play with that. And the, the guy, Harry, who's really the hero of the book, who is a good guy, ultimately, um, he gets fired from his job as a Nixon scholar because history is more future forward now and not so interested in the past, which also is something that worries me about America because I think America is a country that it's like has Alzheimer's or some early kind of dementia where it just entirely forgets what it did yesterday. And then, you know. There's an in, you talk about the desk that he used um, in yes. Watergate. And tell, tell us about that just again. Uh, Nixon had a desk that was wired with five, five bugs, five microphones. 
And it was the, you know, the thing that's also interesting is, so all of this is happening right at the beginning of when we have easy access to things like cassette tape and all that, you know, and, and it's the same thing now where you have all the people, all the weird video footage of all kinds of strange things that never should get out. But it was hardwired down into a locker in the basement of the, of the White House. Um, and he taped everything. And actually, it turns out Johnson taped a lot of things, too. But it's the same desk that's being used oh, well, now well, by, by no. Joe Biden. No, Joe Bar I mean, Dan Quayle, Bar I think, used it. it. It has been used several times. It's now just in the Capitol, and it probably looks like termite holes in it. Yeah, giant yeah. information yeah. holes in that desk. And you, it's interesting, you talk about, as well, the kind of sense of a consciousness of a game book being passed from president mm -hmm. to president to president. Yeah. And I wonder what you think about the current situation. It's really scary right now. We're on the precipice of something terrible. Um, it's true. I think that. I think that. Um, I mean, I think you know. It's it, there's God. I didn't. I had one Coca-Cola today, and I, I don't know if that was too much or too little. <laughs> um, I went to this great economic panel a few months ago, and it was George Soros and Paul Krugman and all these great guys. And one of the things they were saying was, you know, when when China does its planning, it does long-term planning, which means 20, 30 years out. And when the U.S. does its planning, it's based on election cycles. So it's the midterm election cycle, whatever. When Obama said he wanted to fund you know, infrastructure projects mm -hmm. and things that were going to stimulate the economy, he didn't know that we actually have no plans. I mean, literally, there were no plans for any new roads, any new bridges. There was nothing like out there because it hadn't been talked about in a long time. So I mean, I think there's just so many interesting threads, you know. Yeah, no, I think it's very yeah. interesting that you kind of get through this idea of untruth and it comes through to yeah. now and you think, which is the lesser of the two? Um, questions? I'm going to I'm sure you want to, and then I'm going to take one more. So there'll be a third. Who wants it to be there? Okay, I have questions. I have questions for you. Okay. Oh, <laughs> good. Should we tell no. so we go first? Hello. Um, my question is, um, yeah. you started out writing books and then you moved to writing for the L Word. In comparison to writing a book, I yeah. can tell you, Apparently. Well, so, so for those of you who don't know, um, Amy Holmes has also written many episodes of The L Word, which is one of my all-time favorite lesbian series set in Los Angeles. Um, and what, what, is, what has that kind of experience been for you, like writing those episodes as opposed to also writing your books? And, and do you enjoy one more than the other, honestly, or is it kind of a bit, you know, a bit of a change? I enjoy one a lot more than the other, which is writing fiction. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, I, I wanted to work in TV because I wanted to create my own TV show. And TV, you're not allowed to work in TV until you've worked in TV, which makes it a little complicated. <laughs> um, so I knew people who were involved with the L Word, and I said, can I come and do it? And they were like, you want to come? You know, like, novel. And I'm like, yes, you can come. Uh, what day? And so I said, tomorrow is good. And you also get health insurance, which, you know, in America is a phenomenon. And you get um, a retirement. So... I've continued to do it. And I, I would say, you know, it's, TV right now is a very interesting medium. And yeah. all kinds of writers, great film writers, novelists, are all sort of playing in that arena. And part of it is that film has gotten incredibly expensive to make. It's very hard to finance. TV is a very fast medium. It's a little bit like what magazines used to be. You really crank it out there. So when you're actually working on a show that's being shot, it's a great amount of fun because you just get to make stuff up and it happens. You know, for me, writing a novel, it's like, you know, it takes like seven years. That said, you don't own what you write in TV and you're not, you're not really investing in characters. And you're not, I mean, as much as you can think, oh, I'm exploring interesting ideas. And I think the L word did explore, you know, some kind of cultural phenomena and interesting ideas. It's to me is nowhere near 
the gratification and also the intensity and, the, and sort of the, I don't know, the, the depth that I get from writing a novel. So I'm, I'm a fiction writer, which means I'm also a big liar, um, <laughs> but I like that. Um, your question? So two, kind of two questions. Which of the of all the books that you've written, fiction and nonfiction, right. um, which which of those has come out? I guess the most holy, right. um, with a W. Right. Um, <laughs> no and, right. and the second question is, yeah. I, of the books that are there, which are the books that you wish you'd written? Maybe. Sure. I mean, I think the thing that's interesting is I've started writing when I was 19 years old. So I really wrote my first book when I was 19. I wrote a play. I, I wanted to be in the Rolling Stones, and I had no desire to be. But it turns out they don't take girls. Very low vacancy rate. Um, so you wait and wait and wait. I'm ready. You're like, I can't. Know. So anyway, bad idea. Okay. Don't do it. <laughs> I promise. Um, so all that to say, I mean, I like, you know, the books are really like children. And when I was younger, I used to go on book tour, and all my friends were, you know, marrying and having lots of babies. And they would say, like, oh, we had two more children. I'm like, I had a novel. Um, and then the novels all line up. They don't cry in the night, which is good. Um, but they're all different. I think they're all of a progression. If I was being very honest, I feel like this one, something about this book, I was able to take a, a certain kind of risk. And I really thought, you know, it's, I think, a tenth book for me. And I sort of thought, I'm going to write the book that I want to write, and I'm going to really go in as far as I want and go as far as I want to go, including like all this stuff in South Africa mm. and this kind of crazy wild adventure. Um, and it feels very much very whole um, to me in terms of the evolution of this family. And I feel very kind of satisfied by it. Um, but then there's other ones like, you know, End of Alice, which was quite uh, notorious here, was certainly both intellectually and creatively the most difficult book I had to write. And it was a book about a jailed pedophile murder. And the interesting thing for me about that, honestly, was I was trying to write a book to provoke a conversation about how do we handle these things as a society. And the guy, the, the pedophile in jail, says, if I'm in jail, why is this still happening? Which means, hello, like we as a society aren't dealing with it very well. The idea that people were, you know, and it was very unusual for there to be a first person narrative by this point of view. And it's actually used now by psychiatrists to teach therapists how to deal with sex offenders because they're very, very hard to treat. But people were so upset by the book and like, how can you do this? And this is, this is so doesn't happen. And the thing that was so interesting to me is I, everywhere I went, I'm like, look in your newspapers, look every, all around us all the time until we have these conversations, which we don't have right now, but it will continue to happen. And I think we're more and more seeing, you know, like the, the, the case that's unfolding here, like the case of Jerry Sandusky that just happened, mm -hmm. you know, and also that, that until we do something, we're all culpable. You know, people know, people know things and don't, you know, so there, I think there's that piece of it that for me, it's always about kind of talking about larger social and, you know, political ideas. But I think that what, one of the things that's different about this book for me from your other stuff is that we, we, we do get to the end of there has been it's, it's a nuclear family albeit by by a process of implosion right. um, but you know we get to the end and there's there's it's, it is in the end yeah. a happy ending yeah. I have to say um, and I think that's a lovely place to leave it so thank you AM Holmes <laughs>